morning. About two minutes ago, Gordon whispers to me, he said, Bill, I wanted you to know the Lord just spoke to me, and he's changed the topic for this morning. <laughs> and I said, well, Gordon, he may have spoken to you, but he didn't speak that to me, so I'm going with what I got. <laughs> I've been at TCF for 33 years next month, and in the more than three decades that I've called this my church home, I've learned a lot. I've learned a few things about Gordon. I've learned that Gordon used to look like a hippie. It's probably because he was, but now he looks more like Moses. Don't you think? Huh? Doesn't he? <laughs> Gordon, it serves you right, brother. <laughs> I've also learned that if I'm not very careful what I say while trying to promote the need for nursery workers, Jim Garrett will insinuate that I'm encouraging TCF women to have babies so we can fill our nursery. If you were here last Sunday, that's what he did. I've also learned that Joel is the same person at a basketball game as he is in the pulpit. Every bit as positive and joyful even when our beloved Golden Eagles aren't doing so well. They're not looking too good on the floor. I've learned that Al Baker, despite having no children of his own, has a church full of kids who absolutely love Coach Al from Bible Bowl. I've learned that there are so many of you who serve quietly behind the scenes, doing acts of service that hardly anyone ever sees, and never look for credit or recognition. In fact, often avoid it. I've learned so many things that it would be absolutely impossible for me to recount all of them this morning. More importantly than the things that I've learned about individual people here in our long-term relationships, I've learned so much about the Lord. I've learned so much about church and what church is supposed to be. So much about how a New Testament church is supposed to look and supposed to operate. This is what we aspire to be as a church. Now, last week... Jim Garrett talked about our New Testament style system of leadership here at TCF and how and why that's important to who we are as a church. And a few weeks ago, you may remember in the first message of the new year when Jim Grinnell preached, he spoke about excelling still more, about really abounding in some key things in our individual lives and in our church life. And one of those things that he mentioned was good works or good deeds excelling still more in those kinds of things. This morning, I see a very real connecting thread between the two messages we've heard the last few weeks and what I believe God has for us today. And I also see here in these verses that we're going to read here in a minute, many of the most important things that I've learned during my years at TCF. So look for that thread as we read together from Ephesians chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, you might want to pull those out. We'll be spending pretty much most of the morning in Ephesians 4, beginning with verse 11, and we read this, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, 
by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. In many ways, this passage defines the New Testament church, and it speaks of what we hope we're becoming more and more here at TCF. Let's highlight some of the key points in this passage. First of all, we see that God gave gifts. He gave gifts to all of us, and he gave varying gifts of leadership to the church. Secondly, we see in this passage that the primary purpose of those who are gifted for leadership was not necessarily to do ministry, though they clearly do that as well, but to equip the church, the saints, that's all of us, for works of service or ministry. The third thing we see is that as the church is equipped to do God's work in this world, this will inevitably lead to more unity and ultimately to maturity in Christ. The fourth thing we see is that as we grow more and more mature in Christ, we will be less susceptible to all the winds of doctrine. And the implication here is that those winds of doctrine are clearly false doctrine, and they continue to sweep the church today. And last, we see in this passage of Scripture that this maturity in Christ will result in the body working together fruitfully and effectively each one finding a place of service, but each one fully connected in Christ. So first we see that God supplied what the church needs. God gave these gifts to do the work he's given us to advance the kingdom of God. God gave gifts. He gave gifts to all of us, not just to a select few. These are not necessarily gifts of material things, but equipping us to be good at things that specifically help us to serve him. They may be different gifts, and that means inevitably that we do fill different roles as we use our gifts, but they are gifts nonetheless. A few verses before this passage we just read, Paul writes in Ephesians uh, 4, 7, we see this, but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gifts. That's each one of us. That doesn't exclude anybody. And then in verse 11, which we just read, Paul tells us that God gave a variety of gifts to the church, but these gifts in verse 11 were given not only or even primarily so that those who operate apostolically, prophetically, evangelistically, or as shepherds and teachers could do all the works of ministry by themselves. Now, that's the model that we see in many, maybe even most churches today. What happens is a church hires trained and hopefully spiritually equipped people, and they are paid to do ministry, or they're paid at least to do much of it. The people in the church, I found this phrase, they're walking wallets. They're walking wallets. What that means is that they pay for, they fund the ministry that these gifted people do. And that also seems to let everybody else in the church off the hook in some way, doesn't it? They don't have to do ministry themselves. That's the job of the paid ministerial staff of the church. But you know what I've learned here at TCF through the 33 years I've been here? 
That's not God's design. That's not the way God intended it. Clearly, those who are paid for the express purpose of not having to spend hours earning a living in some other way, they do, in fact, have more time to do more ministry, more works of service than somebody else who might have to work 40 hours a week in some trade or profession. Now, personally, I see that as a real luxury that I've been afforded. I'm the most blessed man on earth to be able to do what I'm doing and what I truly desire to do, and I can also happen to earn a living at it, and I'm very grateful for that. But, you know, it wasn't always that way. I've been at this church for 33 years, and I sat where you sit for 17 years before I ever earned a dime from TCF. And one of those years, the first of those years that I was ordained an elder, I was an elder without earning any remuneration from the church at all. Three of our elders to this day don't earn anything for their role as elders. But I'd learned through all those years that I was sitting here in the pews with the rest of you that it didn't matter whether I was paid to do ministry or not. My very identity in Christ meant that I was being equipped by the leaders of this church to minister, to serve wherever I was. Because of that, I had a responsibility before God to be rich in good works, even as Jim Grinnell encouraged us a few weeks ago. And if the day ever came when the TCF budget can't handle the princely sum of my salary, that's a joke in case you didn't get it, I'll still be an elder and I'll still have the same responsibility before God to serve in that role he's given me. All it'll mean is that I'll have a little less time to do it because presumably I'm going to have to be out in the work world earning a living and spending more of my time earning income. Again, remember what Paul tells us in verse 7 of Ephesians chapter 4. God has gifted each of us, each of us, by his grace. Each of us in Christ is able to serve, able to do works of service, able to do ministry. It's no accident that we see the sign we have on our way out of the building. You are now entering the mission field. It's a clear reminder that our service in the kingdom begins when we walk out these doors. It's not just inside this church. It's really both and. We serve in this church, but we serve just as much outside this church. We're here to be equipped. We're here to be prepared for works of service, works of ministry, not just in here, but out there. It's very much the case that we are all God's servants. We are his hands. We are his feet in whatever sphere of influence he's given us. Just because we may not have the opportunity to earn income doing it does not excuse us from the responsibility as followers of Christ to serve wherever he places us, wherever he puts us. And this is related to an idea that we've looked at before here at TCF. There is no hierarchy of ministry in the church. Now, in the scheme of things, serving as a missionary... Serving as a shepherd teacher, functioning evangelistically or prophetically or even apostolically is not a more important role than serving God as an accountant, serving God as a school teacher, a truck driver, a computer programmer, a stay-at-home mom, a custodian, a businessman, or anything else that we could name. God values all of our works of service wherever they are accomplished. So God gave gifts, and the specific gifts he gave, which Paul mentions in verse 11 of our text here this morning in Ephesians 4, 
are given to the church primarily for equipping. These leadership gifts help prepare all of us for works of ministry or service. Now, the word for equip or equipping here is also translated in the King James as perfecting. And that's the idea that we believers in Christ would be made fully ready, fully ready to do what we need to do. Gifted people are to minister the word to others so that they in turn are readied to get involved in ministering to others. The goal of all this is the building up or edifying of the body of Christ. This shows that all saints and not just a few leaders should be involved in ministry. The saints are gifted to serve others spiritually. Think for a second, if you will, of college. Now, college education is designed primarily to do two things. College can provide credentials that we might need to work in a certain field. Think of Lynn Clutter, for example. She could not be a professor of nursing at TU without the doctorate that she earned. Now, she may know more about nursing than anybody out there, but without that doctorate, there's no university that would hire her for the position that she holds. But college can also be equipping. What you learn while earning that degree prepares you for the work that you do. It trains you. Now, what you learn while earning that degree prepares you for work when you're in college, but there's some kinds of work where college is not what equips you. It may be experience. It may be an internship. It may be an apprenticeship. In either case, whether you go to college or not, you need to be equipped for the job that you're going to do. You need to be trained, made fully ready to do most jobs. Now, we also have to recognize that we're always learning, that we're always growing, that we're always maturing. In a very real sense, we never arrive this side of eternity. And in our jobs, we're also always learning. But in some sense, we have to be made fully ready to begin our jobs, even as in those jobs, we continue to grow. Even the language of this passage in Ephesians understands this process as progressive. So the equipping is progressive, but it's the primary role of church leadership to equip the saints. That's all of us Christians for ministry, for works of service, and as always an ongoing process. These works of service or ministry advance God's kingdom, and they build up the body of Christ, Paul tells us here in Ephesians. The other, scene, uh, the other things in this passage that are seen as progressive, we read in verse 13. If you still have your Bibles open, you might look at that. It says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, I don't think unity of the faith here necessarily means that denominations will go away. I think the until means until we hold the same essential truths and the same confidence in the saving grace of the Son of God. It's interesting, then, that Paul makes the connection between this unity and maturity. What he's writing about is maturity in Christ. I think the New Living Translation gives us a good picture here, so let me read that to you of Ephesians 4.13. It's also on your screen. This, that is, this equipping, will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. That's why I've titled this morning's message, Maturity 
in Christ. This is the center of this passage, the focal point of this passage of Scripture. It relates to what comes before it, and it also relates to what comes after it. It relates to the idea of progressive equipping by telling us this, this equipping will continue. God is faithful. What he has begun, he will complete. So this equipping will continue until we do, in fact, have unity, until we do, in fact, have unity in our faith and in our knowledge of Christ, until we do, in fact, attain maturity in the Lord and measure up to that high standard of our calling in Christ. Now, it relates to what comes after this in this way. Maturity in Christ means we won't be like children. Now, by definition, children are not mature. They're certainly not mature physically, but mentally and spiritually and emotionally, they're not mature either. That's not to denigrate children in any way. It's just a practical reality of life, how we grow from one stage to another. We all, smart, uh, we all start small in every way, right? And then we grow, we mature. It's a process. But Paul's telling us that as these leadership gifts operate in the church, the saints, all believers, will be equipped for good works, and they will grow in maturity. As they become more mature, it also says they won't be as prone to wrong understanding of the faith, false doctrine, as they were when they were newer, younger believers, babes in Christ, you might call them. Let's face it, children can be gullible. Any of you have kids that can be gullible? They can be naive. They can misunderstand things. Now, when you're eight years old, that might be pretty cute or funny. For example, consider this eight-year-old's explanation of God. This little girl writes, God's second most important job is listening to prayers. An awful lot of this goes on since some people like preachers and things pray at times beside bedtime. God doesn't have time to listen to the radio or TV because of this. God sees everything and hears everything and is everywhere, which keeps him pretty busy. So you shouldn't go wasting his time by going over your mom and dad's head asking for something they said you couldn't have. <laughs> but these kinds of understandings of God are not nearly as cute or funny when you're an adult and supposed to be more mature. Children are very trusting, aren't they? And Scripture commends the faith of a child. But Scripture also says we're not only to be innocent as doves, which might sound childlike, but what? Wise as serpents. Why did Jesus say that? Why did he say that? He said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. In other places in the New Testament, we see that people who teach false doctrine, people who bring division because of that false doctrine, they're characterized as what? Wolves. So related to this passage, let's also note that wolves are cunning in their predatory ways. In a sense, they're deceitful too, aren't they? They sneak up on their prey. They don't just kind of stand there and say, hey, I'm coming to eat you, right? This is related to another thing I've learned during my years at TCF. Sound doctrine is important. It matters what we believe. It matters why we believe it, how we arrive at that belief. 
And unfortunately, the reality is, the truth is, that there is a vast panorama of false doctrine that's blowing around like winds in the universal church. That's the imagery that Paul uses here. Think about it. Imagine winds kicking up the waves and tossing a boat around in the water like it's nothing, and that boat never gets where it needs to go because what happens? The wind blows it off track, and the waves are constantly threatening to capsize it or overflow it. That's what it's like to be an immature believer, gullible, naive, too trusting of the wrong people, believing the latest and the greatest, perhaps because it's appealing in some ways, appealing to our flesh, perhaps simply just because it's on TV or on the radio or in some best-selling book. But what Paul tells us here is that leadership equips us. Because of that, we're less and less susceptible to those winds. We can stand stronger against those waves. We will not be tossed around like a toy boat in a huge lake in a terrible storm. This dynamic at TCF, this promotion of sound doctrine, rightly dividing the word of truth, solid interpretation of scripture, is one of the most significant reasons I was first drawn to TCF 33 years ago. When I first came to TCF in March 1980, I was 23 years old. I was saved seven years earlier in the summer of 1973, and then just a year later, I was at ORU. Now, as a boy raised Catholic, I have to say that a lot of things I saw and heard at ORU just about blew me away, totally out of my realm of experience growing up. But I was kind of like a sponge. I was just soaking it all in, soaking up everything and not able to or even aware of the need to discern right from wrong teaching. Yet I was growing in the Lord, and I was hungry to know him better and to be like Christ. Well, after I graduated from ORU, some of you know that I worked in radio for a while before I got into another part of a media career. My second job out of college was at a Christian radio station in Memphis, Tennessee. Now, during the programming day, it was about half preachers and about half music. So being on duty at the station, I heard a lot more of some of these preachers, and I began to compare what some of those preachers said with what I was reading for myself in the Word of God. And you know what? some of it was just not the same. It was very difficult for me to reconcile. For example, there were preachers who said that as believers, we should always be healthy. That not only didn't match my own experience, it didn't seem to be what I read in my Bible. There were some of these same preachers who said that because we were king's kids, we should always be wealthy. That too didn't line up with my experience, especially during that day. I was working in radio, I was less than two years out of school. You might think that working in radio is glamorous and lucrative. Well, let me tell you, in many stations, you barely make a living wage. The most I made in that year in Memphis was $700 a month. Now, that was 1979, but even then, it wasn't a lot of money. My challenge was, during this season of my life, I couldn't quite articulate what was wrong with what I was hearing these preachers say on the radio station where I worked. Now, it seemed wrong to me, or at least it was confusing. But they'd cite scripture, just like I was reading scripture, to support their viewpoint. What did I know? They were preachers with a national radio, or in some cases, television ministry. Surely they had to know better 
about these things than I knew. Why did Scripture, however, seem to say what they said it did when they preached it, but seem to say something else in another place when I read it myself? Well, I had my aha moment in 1980 when after a, I left the station in Memphis, had a short stay in Oak Mulgee at a radio station, and I quit moving town to town up and down the radio dial, and we moved back to Tulsa. We looked for a church, and that was right about the time that I came across a book by Chuck Farah. Many of you will remember Chuck. This book was called From the Pinnacle of the Temple. And in this book, Chuck outlined the difference between faith and presumption. You've seen the cartoon in many different contexts where someone finally gets something and the light bulb goes on over their head. Well, that's what happened to me when I read this book by Chuck. Now, as an ORU grad myself, I'm interested in the fact that Chuck's an ORU professor when I read this book. But more than that, I also learned that Chuck was associate pastor at TCF, and that was before we moved into plural leadership like we have now. And I thought, you know, I can learn and grow at a church like this. So Barb and I began attending, and we never left. Now, my point is that I was drawn to this church in large part because I thought that this is a place where a pastor teacher like Chuck, and I found out later, like Bill Sanders, like Jim Garrett, like the various elders that I began to get to know, I thought this is a place that could equip me not only for works of service, but to help me mature in Christ to the point where I could begin to recognize a wind of doctrine for what it was that sometimes it's a wind that has the potential to toss me about like a ship in a storm if I open my sails and let it in. And 33 years later, here I am. This is an important part of what TCF is to me and to you. And last but not least, TCF is a place I learned that Paul's body metaphors in Scripture have very real meaning and purpose in church life. Paul concludes this part of the passage that we've read this morning by writing this, starting with verse 13. Rather, and by this he means rather than being tossed around by false doctrine, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. These are very important verses for a church like TCF that aspires to grow in being more and more like a true New Testament church. We see Paul use and explain this body analogy even more fully in 1 Corinthians 12, but here we still see some key things. We see, first of all, that Christ is the head of this body. Think about this. Who's our senior pastor here at Jesus? TCF. Boy, that's, I really blew that one, didn't I? Who's our senior pastor here at TCF? Jesus. Jesus. He's our head. The elders are only under shepherds, serving at the call of the chief shepherd, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I know many other churches which would readily acknowledge that Jesus is the head of their church too. But at TCF, 
we not only see this reality, but we see it illustrated in the way our leadership works. No one has the title of senior pastor. We also see in this passage another great hallmark of TCF, and it's something I've learned from watching in action here. Linda even referenced it in some ways this morning when she shared earlier. The body is knit together like a family, like Linda said. The body is knit together, knit together by God, but knit together. And each part being joined together like ligaments and joints hold our physical bodies together works together for this body we call TCF to function properly. This is how Paul ends this section of Ephesians, and it clearly applies to TCF as a church. When leadership equips, works of ministry result. There's unity in the body, and the unity really leads to a common understanding of God's grace and of our purpose together. There's progressive, ongoing growth in Christ, and then the body does what it's supposed to do. It grows in Christ, it builds itself up in love, And that love then extends out from the body and advances the kingdom of God. Now, speaking for myself this morning, but acknowledging other elders might say something similar, this is what I work and pray for at TCF. I see my role, my vision, hopefully given by God for ministry here, to equip you. I want to serve this church in such a way that by my preaching by my works of service in your midst, and by my life, we will all grow together. I want us to be so equipped, so full of God, that when we leave this place each week, the love of Christ in a response of gratitude for his grace will so overflow from our lives that we can't help but do works of service. It's going to be, we're so full that it just overflows in everything we say and in everything we do. It's our lives. It's our very lives. We can't help but be ministers of the gospel. We can't help but advance his kingdom here in Tulsa and around the world. May God continue to bring this vision of the Ephesians 4 church, mature in Christ, to fruition in our midst. Amen? Dear Heavenly Father, we're grateful for these words from the Apostle Paul to the Ephesians church, which we take as words to us this morning as well. We thank you, Father, for giving gifts to each one of us. We thank you, Father, for the gifts of leadership that you've given to this church. We recognize, Heavenly Father, that these gifts of leadership are for equipping the saints and that none of us, Father, is off the hook, so to speak, as far as doing ministry or being involved in works of service and advancing your kingdom. We're grateful for these truths. We're grateful for the truth that you will help us to attain to maturity in Christ and unity in the faith. We're grateful for these things, Father. We pray that you would build these things more and more into each one of us. And, Father, that you would continue to knit us together We thank you for that wonderful visual image, Father, of being truly knit together in you, that we become part of one another's lives. And like Linda said, a family, Father God, but working for a common purpose, working to advance your kingdom here in Tulsa and around the world in the things that you've called us to do as a church and even in the things you've called us to do individually that we bring together, Father, 
into this fellowship. We're grateful for these things, Father. We pray that you would do these works in each of our hearts and each of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.